Welcome to the PEBC podcast. My name is Michelle Jones, and I will be hosting our series on phenomenal teaching. This series is a collection of conversations with various authors, classroom teachers, education leaders, and staff developers whose work has influenced the PEBC teaching framework. In each episode, we'll explore how the strands of planning, community, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment cultivate student agency and understanding for each and every learner. Thank you so much for listening in. Today, Samantha Bennett is going to join us to talk about the workshop model. Sam is the author of Why Workshop and a contributing author to Comprehension Going Forward and the Right to Literacy. She is also the co-author with Chris Devani and Debbie Miller of two on-demand courses through Heinemann. Sam serves educators as an instructional coach and education consultant. She's an expert in curriculum design and day-to-day instruction. Sam works with districts and schools around the country to nurture professional capital. She has worked for the PEBC and continues to be a dear colleague and supporter of our work. Hey, Sam. Welcome to the PEBC podcast. Thanks, Michelle. I'm so happy to be here. Well, let's just jump right in. As you know, our dear friend Wendy Ward-Hoffer recently published the PEBC teaching framework in her new book, Phenomenal Teaching. And as you know, that PEBC teaching framework has a long history. It started out, you know, 18 years ago as a look-for document. It was just like a page in a notebook. And we used it at the PEBC to refer to the attributes of high-quality instruction. From there, it grew into the PEBC teaching continuum, which was kind of, I think, you know, led by uh, Paula Miller and Stevie Quaite. And then about two years ago, Wendy said, we've got to revise. Let's go. Like, what changes need to be made? And from that revision process grew her new text and our new framework, which really emphasizes planning, community, workshop, discourse, assessment and thinking strategies are the six strands of instruction that really support agency and understanding. So today, I would love to talk to you about the workshop model. So what are you thinking? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good, broad question. What am I thinking about workshop model? Well, I think uh, for me, workshop primarily is a structure of time. So it is, it is in this deep deeply rooted, deep-seated belief that whoever's doing the reading, writing, and talking is doing the thinking and the learning and the growing. And so, um, and, and this isn't something I made up, right? Like spending time in classrooms where there's that buzz and that electricity and there's this beautiful student work all over the wall. I can open any student folder and see just draft after draft after draft of this high quality work. Um, I I would just linger and figure out like, okay, what is going on in here? So for me, this idea of workshop as a structure of time where two thirds of the time kids are doing reading, writing, thinking, one third of the time are kind of these very intentional teacher moves that happen to, uh, to both to promote behavioral, emotional, and cognitive engagement during that work time on a worthy task. So when you think about, you know, your history with workshop, um, your work in the classroom, your work as an instructional coach, as an author, you wrote that workshop book in 2007, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, one of the quotes in that book that just always has resonated for me, and I just want to share it today, in that workshop book you wrote, workshop is a predictable structure routine, ritual, and system that allows the unpredictable work of deep reading, brilliant writing, mind-changing conversations, inspirational epiphanies, and connections of new to the known 
that is learning to happen. So when I think about that quote and how it has aged so well, taking us to today, you know, you, you just mentioned that link between workshop and engagement. And, you know, I think when you wrote that workshop book, that emphasis on understanding and learning was there. So talk a little bit about what's that connection for you between that deep understanding, that deep learning, and then engagement? Because I'm really curious about those those three areas of engagement that you just mentioned. Okay, so, so the main link between workshop and engagement um, is this idea of work time. When you release kids to do the work, the work has to be worthy of them, worthy of their, worthy of their intellect, worthy of their head, hearts, and guts. And so that idea that one reason that teachers are reluctant to use workshop model is when they, when they release kids, you know, what if all hell breaks loose, right? That, that fear Mm -hmm. of if I'm, if things aren't uh, really scaffolded and very tight. If I don't just release them to do this one thing and then I release them to do this next thing. Um, uh, some teachers that, that makes them very uneasy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in, uh, I get to work with a lot of the brilliant PBC authors and Debbie Miller is one of them. And, uh, in our, in our work together, that idea of trying to get teachers to release this fear and we say, all right, what's the worst that can happen? Great. The class explodes. What might you do if the class explodes, right? That idea of, okay, we pull them on the carpet. We talk again. Are you clear on the task? Are you clear on the purpose? You know, where might you sit? Like these kinds of things. And of course, Debbie changed it uh, in her most beautiful, magical way to what's the best that can happen (laughs) during that work time. So, So for me, the links between behavioral, emotional, and cognitive engagement, when we release kids to work, if they're not working, that's the most exciting thing for us as teachers because then we can figure out what they need kid by kid. So if a kid's being naughty, we say, okay, are they unclear on the task? Is the text too hard? Is the text too easy? Is the text too boring? What what is it when kids aren't behaviorally engaged? We have to look through the emotional and the cognitive engagement for clues about what they need next. So if teachers release kids to work and it's a really silly worksheet, you're going to have kids being naughty. So that idea of when we're asked, when we're releasing kids to do big, juicy tasks that have a real purpose and audience where they might get stuck. That's the best thing. You want at least a third of your class to kind of get stuck when you release them to a task. And then you can start to work with kids one-on-one and one in small group. And that is where the growth happens because you're meeting kids right where they are just in time. All right. So you just completely opened up workshop in a different way. You know, I think when we think about workshop, a lot of teachers think about time and the wheel, that there's this segment of time and I'm going to teach a little bit. And then there's going to be this great big section of time for kids to work. And then there's going to be this little section of time where we reflect. And by adding those different levels of engagement completely shifts my intention. It's not about managing time on the clock. It's not about managing time on that wheel. It's really about thinking about what kids need intellectually, emotionally, and behaviorally. Mm -hmm. So when I think about that shift, 
I think about how does my planning have to change? Like what, how does planning look and sound different now for workshop than maybe it did 10 or 20 or 30 years ago? What do you think is the shift in planning? And just from your expertise and all the classrooms and all the teachers you work with, what are some recommendations you have for how do you plan a workshop a workshop so it's not just workshopping a worksheet? Like yeah, so yeah, so so this is the this is a really key shift. So you never plan a workshop. So what cognitive science tells us is that you need a series of experiences around the same topic in order for things to stick. We are learning so much about the brain and brain science and how things uh, connect and stick that it's this idea of a series of workshops around a topic. So my uh, so my recommendation to teachers is you need to plan in in three week chunks. So this idea of a series of at least 12 to 15 to 25 workshops around a topic to get smarter about it. And it's kind of like going around the main pole. We come back around, we come back around, we come back around, we come back around. So the main thing that has to the shift in planning is that idea of planning in chunks of time and series of workshops. And so what that means is that you need these long-term targets and long-term goals and long-term makes that have a real purpose and audience, and then the days connect over time to get to those powerful, richer, more complex ends. So that is a giant shift. If you are trying to teach in workshop and you are planning one day at a time, you'll give up because it's too hard. It's not enough. It's not enough time and you cannot meet all kids' needs because some kids are really fast thinkers and they can do things. They can do exactly what you ask them to do in the seven minutes you give them to do it, but that is not most kids. And so that idea of when you have a wide range of thinking fast and slow, when you have a wide range of background knowledge, when you need a variety of texts and some kids need two, three, four, five, six, seven texts to build their background knowledge and all these different things. And right. So, so, so it's opening it up and thinking not about a workshop, but thinking about a series of workshops to uncover a topic and to develop a skill that is crucial for your planning. Absolutely. So again, you've just taken it away from the minutes on the wheel. How am I going to slice the pie, if you will, of my workshop time to now something that's really meaningful? Like thinking about that that whole unit, if you will, those long-term targets, those short-term targets. What are kids going to make? What are kids going to do? What problems are they going to solve? Yeah, so that's... Yeah, go ahead. Well, just that, that that's that main shift of instead of what am I going to do tomorrow... A teacher asks, what are the kids going to do tomorrow and what might they need from me to do it with more agency and more urgency and more skill than they would alone if I just assigned the task? Um, So it's not just about assigning rich tasks. It's about, okay, what do I want the kids to do tomorrow? What do I want them to read? What do I want them to write? What do I want them to talk about? And then backing up from those read, write, talk, and what will they need from me to do it with more agency, more urgency, and dig in more access than they would alone. Now, here's the thing. The number of minutes still matter. Mm -hmm. So when I add up 
all the chunks of pie of the read-write talk, it still has to be two-thirds, one-third. So anytime I step foot in a classroom as an instructional coach, that is my very, the very first thing I tackle with teachers is number of minutes. Because if your number of minutes are off, your kids are never going to get enough practice to build a skill. So number of minutes really, really, really matter. What doesn't matter, so I mean, and because when I walk into a classroom, some teachers have a 60 minute lesson, some have a 42 minute lesson, some have a 75 minute lesson, some have 120 minutes. So it's that idea of if you have 120 minutes, two thirds of those minutes, what does that look like? How do you structure those? How do you have catches in between? How do you layer a variety of texts? How do you layer a variety of tasks to get to a long-term task? So number of minutes is still, for me, the hub of the wheel. It does absolutely matter most because when you stay true to number of minutes of kids doing the read-write talk is when you get more strategic about inputs and outputs. So when you think about that idea of, you know, keeping those minutes at the core, like that's a starting point, I would think for teachers is really a really honest kind of either internal assessment or having a trusted colleague or a trusted coach come in and say, what's going on here? Who's doing the thinking? Who's doing the talking? Who's doing the problem solving? Who's doing the reading and writing? And kind of getting that baseline of time. How are we using time in this particular classroom? And then it sounds like there's two other shifts. One is this long-term target, short-term target, big picture planning that I'm going to have workshops that are going to go across time. They're going to build on one another, going to be kind of cyclical in nature so that students have true understanding of the topic, of the standard objective, whatever you are, what language people use. And then there's this daily planning or this micro planning, which it sounds like, just a paraphrase, It's based on what you want kids to do in order to get smarter or better at whatever it is you're trying to figure out as a class. So when you think about that shift to that daily planning, um, those components of workshop, what does that look like and sound like for you if you're co-planning with a teacher or if you're, you know, planning and maybe going to do some demonstration teaching? Talk a little bit more about that idea of starting with what kids are going to do, because I think that's a huge shift. Yes. So when you're thinking about planning in chunks, the most basic kind of 101, and I just, I just use three weeks or a series of 15 um, lessons because that uh, it it just feels right for a lot of teachers. Um, So if we think about this three, this kind of three week sequence, um, the first week is kind of immersion into the topic So let's say the topic is uh, form and function of birds, Um, you know, right? If we, we just start there. So that idea of, okay, thinking about why do birds matter? What do ornithologists do? How do orn- how do people who study birds spend their time? What do those, what do people who are ornithologists, what do they make to teach the world about birds and why birds matter and why trees matter and why, you know, so, so that idea of the first week is immersion into the topic. So no matter what the topic is, or the topic could be a genre, right? The topic could be, uh, you know, commentaries, right? Okay. What are commentaries? 
commentaries. Why do people read commentaries? Why do they write commentaries? How do we trust authors? How do we get famous authors who write, you know, or journalists who write commentaries? Who do we flip to first in the newspaper, right? So it doesn't matter. Whatever the topic is, taking that first week to really unpack what is the genre or what is the topic? Who in the world does this? Why do they do it? And then how do they do it? We start to build those behaviors and habits of readers, writers, thinkers, ornithologists, you know, whatever. So that first week is really that immersion into the topic. Now, before we can plan that first week well, what we have to do is go all the way to the end of the third week and think about what might the students make and produce that shows they understand the big picture? So if it's this commentary unit, obviously they're writing commentaries on some topic. But in order to just not make it fakey for school, we need a purpose and an audience. So is there a school newspaper we could write commentaries for? Or do we want to go to the local neighborhood newspaper or do we want to go to the city newspaper or do we want to go to the statewide or do we want to send it to the New York Times you, like you gotta figure out who is the audience and where are we sending these and does that publication have criteria for acceptance because we have to analyze that right if it's bird scientists okay what do bird scientists write where do they publish where do they share information with each other okay so what are we gonna make that's like that do we want, or do we want to teach the neighborhood about the birds that are in our area? And what might that look like if we're hanging flyers on every door or, you know, whatever. So you got to think about the purpose and the audience for the end, because then that, of course, informs that first week of, of immersion. So week one is immersion. Week three is that final crafting of the product with purpose and audience. And then you have this beautiful wiggle room in the middle, which is, all right, what are we going to need to read and annotate and keep notes on? And then how are we going to look at mentor text to start to create the thing that other people create in the world? So then this middle space becomes this cool uh, weaving and what and you know weaving of reading and writing and making and thinking and talking and talking to experts and looking at mentor texts and then reading things to build our background knowledge. So that helps that daily planning when you have the big picture in mind. Thank you so much for clarifying and for taking us through two little kind of mini units in your head. I think that's you know that's that's a shift is really thinking about that big picture, where are we headed, and what do we need to get there? Um, as we wrap up today, um, we can't help but note the time in history that we're at. Um, you know, you and I are conducting this conversation remotely um, during this time of remote and distance learning because of COVID-19. When you think about your teachers out there who cling to workshop, that workshop is their heart and soul of their teaching in their classrooms, what, what would you want them... To, or what would you want to share with them right now? Thinking about those workshops. Right. Well, I, I, I mean, I think they know best and they have been doing all of this experimenting. I structure my professional development in smaller groups. Um, so, you know, I rarely have a group of 24 or 32 students. So, uh, um, but talking to teachers that I work with um, and, and what they're finding is the best part of this whole being remote from our students is the one-to-one and one-to-small group connections they're able to make with students where you don't have to worry about managing 
24 or 32 kids at a time. So the teachers that I'm talking to that are feeling the most efficacy is when they set up a meeting with six students at a time. They have a really clear learning target. The six students send them work, send the teachers work beforehand. The teacher can look and look for threads and look for things. And then they meet with those six students and say, okay, here's what I noticed, you know, on Jack's paper. Here's what I noticed, you know, and then, and starting to pull those threads between the students and then having the students talk to each other, then putting them in a group of, of a triad to share work with each other and then give each other ideas um, and then to continue continue to draft and craft over time. So instead of trying to talk at 24 students at a time where they all have to mute, um, one of my one of the most hilarious stories was my friend who is a teacher, but she also has a, you know, first grader. And, you know, after 20 minutes, he slams down the computer and he's like, mama, I've been on mute for 25 minutes. I'm done. And he just refused to reopen the computer. He was done. He was done. So that idea of we cannot have full groups on mute you know, for morning circle, as everybody goes around and shares one thing, it's, it's just too much. It's just too much, especially for, I mean, just devastating for our K3 population, right? So Mm -hmm. you got to unmute, you got to meet with small chunks of time and or one-to-one meetings. And and that's the thing that fills our souls anyway, is getting to know individual students deeply. So we need to take this time to get out of our whole group mindset and get into smaller, more targeted groups and, and stronger connections. Sam, thank you so much. It has been an absolute treat to get to talk with you today and connect and hear your thinking. So thank you so much for being part of our podcast and hopefully we'll get to see each other very soon. I hope so. Thank you, Michelle. It's been terrific. Thank you for joining us today. We hope our time together bolstered your agency and understanding. PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, and works locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding, as described in Wendy Wardhofer's newest book, Phenomenal Teaching. PEBC provides customized on-site professional development and coaching for schools and districts, facilitates a variety of institutes and seminars, and offers an array of online learning experiences for all educators. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at pebc.org. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.